Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to our second Hobbit spoiler special. This is of course dedicated to the second of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings prequel trilogy, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, and to help us dissect it in gloriously spoilerific fashion are three of my learned colleagues. Will you help me in this noble quest, Nick Dissemlian? You have my microphone. Excellent. And what of you, Helen O'Hara? You have my black arrow, I guess. And uh, what of you, James Dyer? Do your charge of I'm not. I'm not doing the charge of Do your charge of bings. Do not. it. I see. I, sh- I should have retired this having when I did it in front of Emily Blunt when she came in for the uh, for for uh, what, what was she in for? The, uh, she was five year engagement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I did that for her, and she just looked at me as if I just sort of spat on her shoes. Before the four of us natter on about Smaug for ages, we have two cracking interviews for you, as Nick just hinted. Uh, the first one is with the man who plays the first Northern Irish dwarf in the franchise. Very, very happy about that. It's a yep. cheeky, Corey and chappy, Jim's Nesbitt. And the second is with Bilbo himself, Mr. Martin Freeman. Uh, be warned, both interviews, like this podcast, are spoilerific. The clue is in the title. It's a spoiler special, everybody. So if you haven't yet seen Desolation of Smaug, or if you haven't even read The Hobbit... Because we will be discussing future developments in great detail. And people got angry about that last year when we speculated on what would happen in the Are second and third films. Yeah, they were going, it's a spoiler! You can't say that about Smaug! And we were going, but it's in a book that's 60 years old. There's a statute of limitations on these things, and I think 60 years is well past it. I, yeah, you know me, I'm of the opinion that 60, 60 seconds is usually enough. But yes, anyway. And thank you um, for that, Chris. Yes, I know. It's not my finest uh, attribute, I'll be honest. Uh, anyway, get to a cinema now if you haven't seen The Hobbit, Destination of Smaug, or get to a bookstore. Uh, they still exist. Read The Hobbit, and then come back and listen to this after you've done that. Right? Okay, we can begin now. Yeah, good. Here's James Nesbitt, who is speaking to Nick and Phil Dissemlian. Enjoy. We're very pleased to welcome Jimmy Nesbitt to Hello. The Empire Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, spoiler special. Welcome. It is a great pleasure to be here. Last year, we had a premiere in London and LA and... Oh, where else? No, where were we last year? New York. Um, and Berlin, which is a city I've been to before, actually. I worked there a very long time ago and then Bloody Sunday, which I did... 12 years ago it, it won the Golden Bear so we've got fond memories of Berlin but they just got it completely right you know there were thousands of people out brewing the cold the red carpet was wonderful they had a, um, a huge kind of dragon smog with thousands of coins and it was a really uh, exciting night and then to see the film which really has stepped up a bit I think this second one you know it really kind of you know the journey is truly up and running um, uh, so it was thrilling yeah. Is there a sense of that? With the with the cast amongst the cast and crew, that this one is is a is a step up from the first. I, th- I mean, I don't, you know, listen. It's so hard to be objective about it. I mean, uh, you know, we were there for such a long time, and of course, when you see them, you know, you, you've lost things from it, and you so so that can be quite uh, difficult. So you, you've got your own little, um, you know, insecurities about it. But when you see what how people react to, it, uh, you kind of realise, all right, the, the journey's really up and running here, and people, I think. Um, you know, particularly when we got to the end, uh, I know certainly in LA at the um, at the premiere, you know, people in the audience were screaming out "No!" at the end because um, it's it, it's it's kind of left rather um, thrillingly. <laughs> mm. You got a great bit where you're tussling with a pig. Uh, were you were you disappointed to be uh, sort of left out of the big smile face off at the end? No, I mean it was. There were many reasons for that to tell you the truth because Peter had always given me three months off to come back and shoot another series of Monroe. Uh, and so when I got round to doing that, uh, I, I think they realised, I think they'd possibly forgotten and realised, oh, right, what are we going to do with him because he's going away for three months? 
So, but but I loved to be in Lake Town actually because you know it, it meant that there was just the four of us. There was me, um, Oin, Philly, and Keely. Um, with great fun, uh, and I yes, I got to work with the Cooney Cooney Pig. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a, it was a shame to miss out on Smaug. But you know what's fantastic about the next one, of course, is that that Smaug has a lot more uh, havoc to wreak. Smaug comes to you. Uh, yes, indeed, oh, he does. The thing I loved about both race, he's travelled from he's travelled from Hobbiton. Yeah, he's travelled from Northern Ireland. Yeah, he's yeah. travelled from Northern Ireland via Hobbiton. Eleven thousand miles. Yeah. <laughs> he's travelled far, but he's got all the yeah. way to Lake Town through all these many perils, and he's gone and got drunk, and he's missed the boat. Yes, that was so, a stretch. Uh, <laughs> no, I love that. You know, I mean, because it is, um, you know, to have got that far uh, and suddenly to kind of see them head off. You know, it's. Um, they should you know, have waited, though, surely, no? Wow. Well, it's a key player. Yeah, but I had to go back to Shipman Row, you see. Yes, yes, <laughs> okay, fair have enough. You, have you ever missed anything in real life by, by sort of waking up a bit? Many, ago? many planes, <laughs> many flights I've missed. Although I, back in the old days, I remember now, it's, you know, everything is so rigid. But um, I remember once when I was at drama school, uh, at Central Drama School, getting a flight from Luton on standby back to Belfast, and... Uh, I was a little bit late, but they actually stopped the plane. Those were back in the days when they would stop the plane like they would stop a bus. Now you can't do that. It was great. They stopped it on the runway. More patient than foreign, Ben. Yes, yeah, yeah. They'd stop an Air New Zealand flight, I'm sure, for you. Oh, I, they would. No, that, they're amazing. You know, and, and I don't know if you've seen the, the, the planes with all the... Uh, yeah, the that's how the first time we saw we saw Schmau. Yeah, 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 fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's anything you mentioned, uh, drama school. Yeah. You were at um, the Central School of Speech I was and indeed, Drama, weren't yeah. you? Olivier Dengenesma, that's all you need to know about that, please. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> The I wondered aside from obviously learning to act, yes. <laughs> was there anything specifically useful for for this role that you picked up? There wasn't like a barrel kind of week. No, we didn't really do uh, any of that. But I mean, you know, what was sensational? What was fantastic about this was that uh, you just get an opportunity to do things you never imagined you'll be doing in your life. You know, that's the great thing about entering into Tolkien's imagination, interpreted by Peter Jackson's imagination, which is incredibly fertile and vivid. And um, you know, at times it was frustrating, you know, just in terms of the prosthetics and the kind of the early starts and you have to be really quite patient a lot of the time. But that was far outweighed by just the extraordinary kind of the grand scale of the thing, the locations, you know, 13 choppers traveling around at the same time, carrying dwarves and actors to little locations in Mount Cook. I mean, it's a, a dream, really. I've been leafing through the making of book the last couple of days, oh, yeah. and there are a, a bunch of photos of, of the making of the barrel sequence. Yeah, and you have the biggest grin out of everyone in every shot. There's well, a- we must have just wrapped uh, because, <laughs> because no, it was it was since I mean it was, that was incredible. And again, you know, I mean, of course, there's a bit of CGI involved in it, but not were nearly as much as people would imagine. That's what's you know I I don't know how closely the the the, the fans know that, but um. Uh, what was really sort of um, refreshing about it was that, you know, like a lot of that barrel sequence we shot in the Polaris River in barrels being swept down that river, you know, I mean, it was quite hairy at times, but also fantastic. They also made this amazing kind of barrel roller coaster, like a Big Dipper uh, in a studio out, uh, outside of Wellington where we were, which it was kind of driven by these uh, incredible sort of turbo machines and we were kind of flying around in the barrels. I mean, it was, um, what you see is what uh, happened. Which of the 13 of you complained the most? Ah, that's a great question. Um, we sort of took it in turns to complain. Ken Stott. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Stott, definitely. Not a fan of log flumes. Uh, no, but he's, oh, hey, listen, he's, uh, he's great, Ken. But yes, there was, we all took it in turns to complain, yeah. 
Okay. And I mean, Lake Town w- was a bit of a family affair for you because... Uh, yeah, you- no, my kids are in it, yeah. Yeah. Which was not part of the plan at all. You know, they were out there. Obviously, they came with me. And I think when, again, what's so brilliant about Peter and, and, and uh, his writing partner and partner in real life, Fran, and then Philippa, the other writer is that they are so collaborative and they kind of like will just feed off, you know, certain things and, and, and they met my daughters early on and, and Bard the Bowman played by the sensational Luke Evans. He always had a son and I think all of a sudden they thought, oh, well, maybe he could have daughters as well. I mean, they may have been thinking of a whole new demographic for <laughs> the um, uh, for uh, the paying uh, clients, but um, uh, the girls were, you know, Peggy, my eldest one, she auditioned for it. Uh, that The tape had to go to America, I think. I don't think they knew that she was connected to me. She got that. They then brought Mary in. And so it was uh, not part of the plan, but it became something even more exciting for them, you know. Have you now got all your other family members calling you, saying you need to get us in the film? Yeah, I mean... You know, what was great about it is that it was a sense of kind of family. I cannot stress just how much family is important to kind of Peter and all that because they they know that they're asking people to come to the other side of the world for a very long time, so they want them to be as comfortable as possible. And even though it's huge, like with a crew of hundreds and hundreds, and it sometimes when first and second unit kind of clashed, we'd have to find a thousand beds like in a little kind of village. Um, yet it still does feel very kind of tight and together. I wanted to ask a bit about, uh, about your singing because um, oh, yeah. the extended uh, yeah. Blu-ray and DVD of the first film came out not too long ago. Yes. And you have uh, some I have singing. a song in it, yeah, yeah, I, uh, which I uh, wrote. Oh. Really? Words by Tolkien, music by James Nesbitt. Like Lieber and Stoller, Lennon McCartney, Tolkien oh. and Nesbitt. Can you uh, teach us a little... A little uh, Stanza? Uh, uh, I'm a little bit man fluey, but uh, <laughs> how does it go? It's actually, it's called, I think it's called The Man in the Moon Song, and it was actually, the words are from The Rings, and I think it is uh, one of the characters in The Rings uh, had it, but then we put it in, and Fran came to me and said, look, well, I'll come up with a tune, and you come up with a tune, we'll take it to Peter tomorrow and see what we think. So... Um, yeah, it goes, there's an inn, there's an inn, there's a merry old inn beneath an old grey hill. And there they brew a beer so brown, the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. Sort of like that. There oh, we go. It's a drinking good. song. Very good. <laughs> Always good to have some singing in the in the pod booth. Yeah. That was, we went to, uh, they had a special Hobbit fan event with, with multicasted around the world with Peter Jackson in New Zealand. And wow. They had, they had uh, Richard Armitage in New York and yeah, yeah, yeah. Lily in LA. Oh, that's And, and uh, they debuted that your song oh, did they? as part of it, as one of the deleted scenes from the first oh, movie. Right. Yeah, yes, I was sorry it was deleted, but at least it's in there now. It is in there now, very much. Yeah. got a very warm reception. Also, um, have, you seen, have you seen the extended one? I haven't seen it yet. I have, yeah. You know the opening um, the, where uh, it's flashback and Bilbo's mother is there? Yes. Uh, that is um, my wife. Really? The mother wow. of my daughters. Wow. Okay. You're going to get a lot of great uh, presents for Christmas. People are going yeah, to so. repay you for this. The trouble yeah. is you can't give them more like Hobbit Lego because they've probably yeah. already got it. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Well, yes, I've got a house coming down with Hobbit Lego. I always thought the best thing about it was um, because you know of my hat uh, and my hat is detachable. And I've just, uh, I can imagine all the uh, visits to casualty little uh, kids having the hat up their noses on them. <laughs> Stuck, lodged there. Mom! <laughs> Bofer's hat's up my nose! <laughs> um, going back to the late town, the end of the movie. Yeah. Bofer is obviously, as we mentioned, he's he's back in late town. The rest of the dwarves have gone off to tackle Schmal. Yeah, well, he's in late town with Feely Keely. Keely, who's now t- t- terribly injured, mm. who, uh, who's just been healed, I think, by Tariel at that stage. 
And Bofur is going to be facing a dragon quite soon in the third film. Yeah. With a terrible hangover. Yeah. Which is probably the best way to... It's probably the best way to see a dragon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then you're less likely to be scared. I mean, you know, it is very exciting about the third one. I mean, and again, even though when you're doing the movies and when we went back for pickups, you don't really know what's going on. I mean, particularly Aidan Turner, who plays Keeley, uh, he never knew. I mean, like he was basically would say to you, "What dragon? What dragon?" Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the, the the third one kind of it's left on real tender hooks as you uh, saw, and uh, I think the third one kicks off. And it's amazing when you see what Smaug does to Lake Town. Whoa. It is truly say no more. He doesn't sort of fix it up, do, <laughs> do some repairs. Yeah, that would be a big surprise. Yeah, no, it's uh, pretty astonishing. Okay. Do some pebble dashing. Yeah, yeah. The um, the plan that the dwarves execute in the Lonely Mountain is in, is very elaborate, very mm. cunning, and involves quite a lot of smelting. Yes. Um, I wondered if Bofor would have been had a different plan. Would he have been impressed with what they came up with? Do you think, or do you think you just would have gone along along with it? I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting about Bofor um, and 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 Bomber and Biffer is you know they are they are a different breed of dwarves. You know they're they're not quite as sophisticated as. Um, as the others, and I don't think—I mean, I think they went on the journey really just to have a bit of fun, you know. I mean, maybe make a few quid, do a bit of fighting, um, but they're quite hard, um, you know. They—they—they they, they work hard and they play hard. I think by the time we get into uh, into the mountain and we see the corruption, the corruptive n- nature of the money, mm-hmm. um, uh, which comes, I think that that's something that they would not approve of. Yeah, and they'd—they'd be, they'd be much. They'd—they'd they'd rather just take the dragon on, you know, kind of a. Uh, hand to hand, you know, come back. <laughs> did you did you come up with a backstory for? for your we book? did that a bit, you know. I mean, because we when we were there first, we we spent a lot of time, kind of, which has been documented before, sort of rehearsing together, kind of this sort of dwarfish camp boot camp thing. Um, and yeah, we came up with stories in the same way that you you always try to as an actor, but a lot of the time you're just sort of um, making it up as you go along. <laughs> I'm, Which I'm, is what I think Buffer does. I mean, I think he's one of those characters that does just make it up as it goes on. I'm very curious about how Bomber is not losing weight <laughs> after all this running. Yeah, he's, he's constantly running. Yeah, no, constantly running, and is actually the fastest. I mean, there's a there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a wonderful sequence where he uh, when we're being when we first encounter Bjorn, yes. when we first encounter Thomas Bjorn, the well known <laughs> golfer, uh, uh, where Bomber is uh, all of a sudden becomes Usain Bolt. Um, it's a sudden second wind. Yeah, yeah, uh, and he's oh, what a uh, you know I had the best time with Stephen Hunter. He was like my brother. We had a great time and also I tell you even after like at the end of pickups there which is two and a bit years since we started he never ever failed to produce a laugh just looking at Bomber mm. every day I mean we just couldn't believe it just genuinely yeah. comedy he's fantastic I mean he's like a great silent movie character yeah, he, really he is. hasn't had a line yet I believe is that a deliberate that thing is deliberate yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, much to his chagrin, I think. Uh, but um, but yes, just visually, just an incredible character. Yeah, there's a great. I mean, there's obviously a great potential joke there, isn't there, in the third film? Yeah, that he does get a line, and yeah. it's something hilarious or yeah. not or well, serious. Watch the space. Okay. okay, all right. I I'm curious, having now seen the film in Berlin this week. Yeah. Uh, was, did you have a favourite moment and was there anything that was not there that you you felt sorry well there's a few things that always kind of you know go um, but uh, I, I'll tell you who I love and I love well obviously I love when I see my kids in it you know because I've never acted before and when I see little Mary in close up um, being all scared and also I, I love the uh, sequence when 
uh, in Lake Town they're attacked by uh, the orcs because um, I think my kids were really good in that and they're all mm-hmm. they scared and I wanted to protect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mary, your youngest, yeah, she was born. Was she not born in two thousand and one? I guess the the same year that the first Lord of the Rings film. Yeah, that would be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was released. That's Did right. she kind of grow up with those? Films not really. Or? I mean, they, we watched them when we went out there. Right. Um, but no, it wasn't really part. It wasn't really in her radar, you know. Which I think is quite good in a way, you know. So she was coming. She was coming to it completely fresh. They just had a lovely time on set with with really lovely people. I mean, they didn't take it too seriously. Yeah, we mentioned the extended edition, uh, which has got extra extra you. Yeah, and nine hours of documentary. So it? I believe I haven't seen it yet. I haven't yeah. seen it yet. No, that's incredible. Well, I mean, also Peter is so Peter is so aware of um, the devotion of fans, you know. Uh, and it's, I think, one of the most wonderful qualities about Peter Jackson is that he is so mindful of how, of how much people d- devote to it that he wants to give them as much as possible. Mm. Are you a, uh, a DVD collector? Do you ever listen to a commentary or watch a making of or anything like that? No, and again, I probably will with this. Uh, but, um, no, I mean, I, I, I've had to do a couple of commentaries. It's a very odd thing, you know. Um, I did it for yeah a couple of movies, one particularly Bloody Sunday. And what's interesting about it is it does bring it all back to you and you kind of relive it and again. But it's also quite a responsibility to be revealing all this stuff. You know, it's tricky. Mm. Have you seen Captain Phillips yet? Yeah, I went to the premiere. Sensational. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Tom Hines is wonderful. Wonderful last uh, scene with that. Um, and also, it's p- particularly Greengrass because there's obviously a lot of non-actors in there You know, that brings authenticity to it and I love that. Was that one of your favourite films of the year? Do you, do yeah, you I thought that was really... Very, very strong, yeah. Have you had a chance to see many films this year? No, I watched a bit in... Uh, I tend to watch sport more than films. <laughs> uh, and obviously I hate watching films I'm not in, uh, so I don't watch that. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, um, I'm trying to think what I've seen. No, Captain Phillips I loved, but uh, in New Zealand we... Um, because the outdoor life is so attractive there, I mean, you tend uh, actually to spend most of your time just sort of out in the boat. But I guess you've been on a lot of long flights to New Zealand. I have done that journey a lot, yeah. but you know they, um, as you may imagine, they sort of look after you in the Hobbit, and uh, when you kind of turn left as you walk onto the plane to fly to New Zealand, it makes it a lot more attractive than turning right. And I love, it. I, I mean, a lot of the time I didn't want to get off the plane. <laughs> it is. So amazing. have you had a lot of roast lamb over the past sort of? Four a lot years? of roast lamb, a lot of roast lamb, a lot of Pinot Noir, uh, quite a lot of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, a lot of flat whites, flat white. Uh, which is fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, no, I went there not as a non-coffee drinker, and now I am in a state about coffee. Have you picked up any Kiwi Kiwi slang? You say Kiora or? Uh, well, they say. Uh, I mean, you know, flat white is fantastic. I mean, it's really quite odd their accent. Sort of fish and chops. Fish and chops. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And have you been to Peter Jackson's house? He famously has a, a guest wing, which is a hobbit hole. Oh, no, that's up in the country. We didn't get up there. But we um, he's got a few houses in Wellington, Peter, and, and we were lucky enough to uh, to stay in one of them. I mean, he's, again, that's, you know, a lot of the cast were staying in places that, that, that they kind of um, own. And they, they just sort of open up their lives and their worlds to you. I mean, they're, uh, they're, they're generous people. And it is the most beautiful place. You know, one of the first... And about within the first week of being there, I was out on the deck one night, and um, uh, just in front of me, these three um, uh, baby uh, orcas went past. Wow! Well. You kind of think, all right, now I'm on the other side of the world. Wow! <laughs> Amazing. Wow. But, I mean, sorry, no, you go ahead. Just going to um, ask. You know, it's a huge cast. Yeah. Just the dwarves. There's there's thirteen of you. Yeah. Have you sort of kept up with people? Is it too much of a? No, we do. I think you know. I mean, the, it was. 
it was incumbent upon us that there would be a sense of brotherhood there, not only for the, the film, but it just happened naturally, you know. And uh, no, we keep up. Stephen, I'll probably uh, Stephen Hunter who plays Bomber. I'll um, uh, I'll Skype him now uh, when I get back today to see how he's doing because they were they they were at a screening in Wellington, I think, in the same night as as we were in Berlin. Um, yeah, Aidan, uh, I see a lot. I mean, we, yeah, we're all in contact, and we um, you know, we are. Uh, we went through quite a lot together, and I absolutely do not want to give the impression that it was very, very difficult. But, you know, it, there were challenges at times, and if you spend that amount of time uh, together, you, you can't help but form a bond that is pretty unbreakable. Mm. But Stephen is one of the, the guys that you're close oh, to. Oh, I, Stephen, uh, and Aidan, and Dean, and I know all of them, really. Is he actually a big talker when he's not uh, wearing the bomber? Stephen is, he's very, very funny. Uh, uh, he's a, a great Epicurean. He loves, very like Bomber, he loves his food. Uh, to the point where I always tell the story that we were, um, he sees food everywhere, Stephen. And uh, we were out skimming scones, stones one day when we were on location. And he picked up uh, uh, this pebble and he went, Look at that, just looks like a samosa. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe this explains where Bomber's, you know, he's just eating stones. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He must be happy with that that barrel shot, which is one of oh, the, yeah, really wonderful, the most insane. It? Have you heard from him on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, thrilled. I think you know. I think I think he's missing it because you know he's on the other side of the world, and and, and I think we all sort of miss each other. And uh, you know, hopefully, we'll get the opportunity to see each other again next year for the last one. On a slightly different note, it's absolutely beholden to me to ask anyone involved in the young Indiana Jones. Oh yes, I was in a that. question about that, and you were in that, and I believe in an episode alongside Jason Fleming. I don't well, know if you, if you shared any... I played, uh, no, I played, I think I was a Russian. Uh, and I was, uh, the, the actor I was working with, we were kind of a double act, who's called Niven Boyd, who sadly died a few years ago. But the director, an Australian director, for some reason thought that that he was called Niven and I was called Boyd. And so he used to be just saying, has anyone seen Niven and Boyd? And I'd be like, no, it's Niven and Jimmy. But I mean, it was very exciting and we had to do this complicated um, uh, escape from a kind of a Colditz-type prison. Uh, and I, no, I loved it, actually. Were there any um, sort of parallels between being in George Lucas's world like that and being in Peter Jackson's? No, I mean, because... No, I mean, because it wasn't on the scale. Nothing, nothing could prepare you for being in The Hobbit. I mean nothing. I mean it's the scale like you mm. you could not believe. The world is astonishing, and that's and you enter that world. You know, I mean, for a long time, and it's um, yeah. I mean nothing could prepare for that. But Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, it has to be Star Wars to complete the uh, yeah, indeed the geek hat trick. No, that that is the geek hat trick, isn't yeah. it? No, I'd love yeah. to do that. Yeah. Okay, who would you be? Um, a sort of a roguish Irish character, <laughs> <laughs> an Irish hand sailor. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a lovely place to wrap Brilliant. up. Thank James, thank you so much for coming in and talking to Great us. Great pleasure, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now Mr Martin Freeman, who was also talking to our very own Killian Philly, Nick and Phil. We're very pleased to be joined by Martin Freeman in this special Hobbit Empire spoiler podcast. Welcome, Martin. Hello, nice to be here. I, I checked with him more than once uh, when we did our last bit of photography up in July. And I said, is that really it? And he said, yeah, that's absolutely it. And he looked quite honest when he said it he's got an honest face so wow. he said no that's that's done and I've seen him the last couple of days and he said he's just starting to edit the third one now he will go straight into kind of editing it's all done yeah. wow so are you are you allowed to say what your last bit of filming was your last shot yeah um, I probably am actually and then you can decide whether to cut it out or get sued I think my last bit was it was with Thorin I think it might have been god yeah it was with Thorin and maybe Barlin mm. I have a feeling. That was the last couple of days anyway. 
in fact, the very last thing I shot, I think, was on my own. I think it was maybe me and a shot of the ring or something. But it was all amidst Thorin's gold madness. It was all kind of uh, around there when he goes balmy over the over his dwarf gold. Because we see the beginning of that yeah. at the end of this movie, yeah, where he gets his sword out and you see for the first absolutely, time, really. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that really sort of gets stronger in the third film. You know, he, be- you know, Thorin is never a particularly happy chap, but he becomes even more. Um, just more driven uh, for all the wrong reasons, you know, to get mm. the Arkenstone back and to reclaim his kingdom. It's just a, like it's gold fever. I imagine it's hard not to get gold fever when you're surrounded <laughs> by that insane amount of. Yeah, uh, well, but then Bilbo manages it. I suppose hobbits are quite incorruptible. You know, in the in the lexicon of Middle Earth species, they're a safe bet, really, not to go too mad and not to let power corrupt them or, or wealth corrupt them. They have so much gold. I mean, is there not a sort of issue with inflation? I was looking at it again last night and I thought, this is a really a massive amount of gold. You know, like <laughs> in those scenes with Smaug where you go, this is just the entire place is made of gold. So I don't know, maybe it was a kind of empire thing that they've been raiding everyone else's gold as well. You know, I guess they've they've maybe nicked other people's or, the, or they, they make a hell of a lot of gold in those yeah, furnaces. Because they're not actually that bling, are they? The dwarves, no, not at all. They're not really not ostentatious with their gold. Not at all. No, I mean the the stuff that they wear and the stuff that they have about them themselves is more sort of arts and crafts, really. Do you know what I mean? It's it's very kind of crafty, very detailed and intricate, but it's not you know, it's not conspicuous consumption. Mm. You know. I guess we're kind of starting at the the end, but um, I just wanted to ask about shooting shooting that because it's it's amazing special effects. But I'm sure there yeah. was a lot of stuff actually there. There were thousands of gold coins that wet. There made. were there were hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, of coins, be it metal or polystyrene or whatever. I mean, it's the biggest pile of wealth I've ever seen, you know. Um, but of course, that's enhanced uh, digitally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all, like that set, like all the sets, like the Lake Town set was incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's all helped along in post-production. But the physical stuff that you're dealing with at the time is um, extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it, and I probably never will again. Yeah. But spending weeks or months clambering over metal, mm. wearing bare feet, essentially. Yes, well, bare feet for Bilbo, but for me, bloody great skis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not as uncomfortable. You didn't get coins stuck between your toes all day. No, none of that. It's quite uncomfortable, though, because... They do act as a sort of well. They don't act as skis and give you a level kind of playing field over that. They actually just make you sink. It's like working on gold quicksand. So every step you take, you're just sinking down and down, and then cut, reset. And resetting is the work of about five or six people who come and put everything in the way that. Because as soon as you step on it, that you just cause a little landslide. You know, mm. um, it's very very difficult to reset that stuff. Were there any Scrooge McDuck jokes made on set by anyone? No, weirdly, that that never even occurred to me. <laughs> that, Not that a DuckTales fan. To me. I like Donald, I've, but I like Donald, but DuckTales, not really. I like Donald as part of the pantheon of, you know, Mickey and Goofy and Pluto and all that, but not, no, not. When it gets too specialist, Duck, yep. that's too much of a, that's, but, that's Joey. That's a Duck exclusive on the Empire podcast. Yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, there's a lovely moment, in fact, one of my favourite moments in, in the movie mm. when you are confronting you, you, you Smaug starts to reveal himself for the first time yeah. and you're back you're creeping away and then you do this yeah. lovely little bit of sort of silent comic acting where you oh, yeah. kind of turn yes. and crouch in a way that he's not going to be able to see yes. you because I can't like see it, him exactly because you, you can't, can't see, see him, him he can't see you yeah. was, that, was that your idea or was that something that, that was kind of you work with Peter on or no that would have been me it's, yeah that yeah. just would have been me. There's, you know I mean Pete's pretty trusting and uh, once he 
I think once he does trust trust you, he lets you run with the ball, and uh, you know, and I, we did that. Obviously, we did a lot of takes, and I like, you know, I, if I can avoid it, I try not to do a take like that twice in a row. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so that just would have been whatever he chooses to edit. Obviously, that's that's mm. his choice. But the the things that you do in the moment are, is that's no, you. It's that you do that. And that you was just my little. That was my rip off of. Uh, Lou Costello, by the look of it. I'd forgotten I'd done it, but it has a definite Lou Costello look about it. I was going to say, you also do a textbook backwards slide um, yes. in the, the, just before the barrel sequence. Yes, well, well, Pete is, well, I mean, that, that was Pete's choreography because he's a big Buster Keaton fan. And, um, and that had a bit of Keaton in it, yeah. 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 That was a great gag. Yeah. Which leads us on to the barrels because we yes. have to talk about the barrels. Yes. I, I personally think it's the, the, the best bit in the movie. It's amazing, isn't it? I watched it again oh. last night and it, it does make me laugh just the audacity of it you know it makes you smile to watch it because you think christ he's really pushing the boat out here yeah i love the way it's it's really like a theme park ride and the way they had to pull a lever to get it going at the beginning as yeah well. yeah um, i just think it, it just keeps growing and growing and then you know bomber's little excursion you know just bouncing off the banks and <laughs> and then he kind of just twizzles around and just you know mucks up all the orcs uh, i think there is so much to it that is both comic and exciting um, yeah, it's spectacular. And there's a few sort of set pieces like that in the film. You'd be lucky to have one. But, you know, there's a, there's a few of those in this. That's your price of admission right there. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it but, really uh, is. And, and Pete's a big believer in that. Pete's a big believer in sending people home entertained and happy and uh, sated. Was that a, a watery ordeal? Yeah, it was. It was, actually. I mean, obviously... <laughs> You'll be amazed to know some of that was CGI. Um, <laughs> Come on, some no of, I'm not going to tell you which bits, <laughs> but um, you see, if you can, well, you probably won't be able to spot the difference because it's so good. But you will guess that you know we didn't go through all that ourselves. But what we did go through was, yeah, it was a lot of days being soaking wet and trying not to drown or get your leg crushed by rocks. Yeah. Did you have special towel wallers standing by? <laughs> Towels were of no use at all. I mean, like the you know the wardrobe. Uh, team and the makeup team were sterling and did absolutely what they could but no I mean when you're that wet it's forget it because you've got you've got your costume on and underneath that you've got a wetsuit underneath as well just to keep some insulation in you know otherwise you just freeze we spoke to Richard Armitage and Mm. he said that he had a great time Mm. shooting that sequence yeah and how much fun it was and I was like it must have been moments when you thought I just want to be dry for a bit now oh of course I think so to be absolutely honest I think it was more fun for them in barrels for me not in a barrel that's I, th- I listen. I had fun, but it's a definite different because you you're not on the ride there because you're not actually in a thing yeah. that is buoyant and unsinkable. Yes, you can't sink those barrels. That was I mean, his you point. can still get you know really bloody wet, but you can't actually sink. You can you can sink in the water. <laughs> I mean, like, it's I'm very sinkable. <laughs> you're never going to be able to go on a theme park log flume ever again without just going. This is. <laughs> Yeah, the this is this? nothing. Yeah, this is rubbish. I know it's ruined log flumes for me. They're doing a they're doing a Hunger Games theme park. I'm not sure if you are they really. Heard about I'm that. not going to that. Depending <laughs> on how close to the film it is, and there's it a Harry terrifying. Potter one. So there's got to be a, a Lord of the Rings stroke Hobbit one. At, you at would some think point. so. You would think so. I'm yeah. I'm not the man in charge of that. Have you got any ideas for for rides for that? I like, I like just Bilbo's scree slope. <laughs> yeah, or just Bilbo's pantry or something just go in and <laughs> stuff your face which it could be the other bit that could be the canteen <laughs> have you uh, yeah which reminds me that there is a Denny's uh, it is called the Bilbo Breakfast Feast yeah. which is uh, have you heard about this no. there's a big Denny's tie in it's cheesy eggs and then there's French toast with honey all over all of it really yeah it's got I'm your glad face it's on the side. That's good that there's no meat on it. That's good. Yeah. I wouldn't have liked to have put my name. It's just not my name. My name's not actually <laughs> Bilbo. It's not my Come decision, on. is it? It's Tolkien's name. 
uh, to a, to a meat feast. I'm glad it's veggie. Uh, what's Denny's? Denny's is like a it's it's a fast food place in America, McDonald's yeah. style. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. They've gone a whole bit crazy. I bet they sort of radagast cheeseburgers, (laughs) (laughs) all kinds of stuff. Um, (laughs) Hedgehog hot dogs. We wanted to talk about the the Merkwood sequence, which is another beauty. Curious as to how that worked in terms of the voices and and, uh, who voiced it and Mm -hmm. whether you knew what the voice was going to sound like, the timbre of the voice of the spiders before you kind of did that. We had a pretty good, because obviously, you know, Peter is a a shameless um, ham. You know, so he will act things out as much as he possibly can, and and he so he was actually on my bit of the spiders. You know, as as Bilbo sort of turns and starts to actually hack away at spiders, he he was reading in the spiders for me on a microphone from his little directing tent. And I remember once I said for a joke because he said he, he came out and said, "Is that is all right, me reading in, or do you want someone else to do it?" And I said, "No, I want you to do it, but as long as you do it." And I said something like, um, in a sort of really camp, posh accent, "I need you to do it like that." <laughs> Obviously joking. And then the next time he was thought of going like that. It really made me laugh. I didn't mean it. Yeah, I didn't actually mean you to do that. But he'll take any acting challenge going. He'll run with that ball. Uh, Kenneth Williams. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The thing is, Pete knows, you know, it's not like going to lots of other countries where those people are not known. You know, the people who are part of our DNA are all known Mm. very well in New Zealand. Very, very well. Um, more than in any other country I've been to, actually, actually. comedy, Man, comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, I mean, they grew up on all the same stuff that we did. Yeah. So the final voice we were talking about this in the office earlier, and, and trying to figure out if it was Andy Circus or not, because there's definitely a. a yeah, touch I know, of, I know. I, I wondered. I don't know actually, because I know Andy did a lot of voices in the original Rings films. Um, you know, orcs here and there mm. and stuff. But I, I don't know if that's Andy. I don't even. One of them may even be PJ. I mean, you know, he'll. Mm. He'll get in there if he can. You okay, know. we'll get to the bottom of it. Mm. And the, the the tripping out sequence. Yeah. Um, what was your direction for that? Apart from just to be total. I mean, yeah, and to be totally. Um, well, just high. I mean, high and and disturbed. Do you know what I mean like like the whole thing was like it was a an archetypal bad trip. You know, what I mean? so so you're starting to kind of feel woozy and pass out and you're seeing things that aren't cool you know aren't pleasant but are actually really really unsettling um was the expression tripping balls ever mentioned on set tripping balls what's that <laughs> i think that's from um uh, 21 jump street really yeah, a, big, a big sort of hallucinogenic sequence in that no what does it mean uh well it means uh yeah uh, tripping out just oh, I see. Balls. There's no literal balls involved. See, right. <laughs> it's just to yeah. say. Well, it would mean something it's very different on the Hobbit because there were balls fucking everywhere. There were green balls everywhere for us to look at as eyelines. So that there might have been tripping balls. <laughs> when I when I had to look back at myself, yeah, um, I really did do that. I can split myself in two. Well, I was gonna I was gonna ask who who the actor was, but I don't need to. The now. actor may have been if I'd had such a thing as a a stunt double, <laughs> which obviously I didn't need. And if I did, he certainly would not be called Brett Sheeran. Uh, it, it may have been Brett Sheeran. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Speaking of uh, doppelgangers or the same person, um, have you met? Have you talked to Ian Holm about the character? Have you have you crossed paths? Only very briefly, you know, at the um, at the opening of the last film, in the sort of all the London shenanigans, uh, McKellen had a, a night at his house. I think the night before the the premiere, and it was lo- you know, Ian is such a good host. He's a really lovely host, very generous. Loads and loads of people were there at his house, and um, and Ian Holm was there. And Pete knew that I'd never met Ian Holm, and so he kind of said, you know, would you, 
you know, oh, he's just come in. Would you like me to meet him? So, yeah, please, I really would. I'd like an introduction. And he was really gracious. And, uh, you know, I didn't I d- didn't know him. I don't know him well at all, you know, but I'm a big respecter of him, as is anyone who's <laughs> seen his work. And um, the next night after the premiere, he was sat a few rows behind me. And uh, as the credits came up, I was sort of leaving with my mum and... Uh, and he leaned over and said, "You were fucking brilliant." So I thought, "Well, that's that's enough for me." You know what I mean? That that's a good sort of um, yeah. I'll take that. You know, that's very nice. Yeah, yeah, because he's rather good too. It's so a passing um, of the torch. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A sweary torch. But <laughs> yeah, a sweary <laughs> torch, torch yeah. nonetheless. I, I wanted to ask about deleted scenes because I'm guessing that in this film, more than in the last one, there is stuff. I mean, there didn't. There wasn't enough Stephen Fry for my liking. No, indeed. There's, well, there's not enough Gandalf for my liking either. You know. No. So was there much, to your knowledge, that, that got snipped? There's not enough me for my life, <laughs> to be absolutely fair. You Some know, people have complained about To that. be fair, you know, it's called The Hobbit. I don't, yeah, I think there are a lot of the scenes that y- you may be talking about, I wouldn't even know anyway, because I wasn't part of that world. You know, I, mm. while we were doing this film, the whole Lake Town part of it, which, as you may well know, doesn't take up that much of the book, it started to take on sort of epic proportions in the filming. It was like they were making Ben-Hur at the same time as we were doing whatever we were doing. In the, in you were the, doing Gone with the Wind. Around the yeah, we were doing Gone with the Wind and they were like, it was like two massive films being made. Yeah. So I honestly, A, I don't know what the deleted scenes would be. B, I can't remember. I mean, I, I really cannot remember. It all... The Bjorn Blends into one. Seems. There was more of that. Yeah, yeah. there's more of... The, absolutely, there's more of Bayorn. There was, there was a... There was a, a quite a funny introduction to... Bayorn. Once we've established that we're staying in a lunatic shapeshifter's house, the next morning we all kind of tentatively wake up. And before the scene that is in there, when he's feeding us and telling us how he hates um, dwarves and orcs and all that, there's a scene where Gandalf and I go out and sort of try and explain, thank you very much for letting us stay at your house. And he's chopping wood. He's enormous. We've got this axe and sort of chopping wood. And... Um, and he looks around and says, is there anyone else with you, sort of thing? And he said, well, them, and Ian says, there may be one or two dwarves, you know. And Because he, he knows he hates dwarves. He said, oh, what do you mean dwarves? And then, so that bit by bit, they come out kind of one or two at a time. And it just gets more and more ludicrous that the house is absolutely That's full of dwarves. That and that yeah. took a long time to film, actually. It's all, it all feels like quite a movable feast, do you know? And Pete's quite ruthless. He will just use what he wants to use, you know, what he deems is absolutely uh, germane to the film and not you know not your favourite bit or not his favourite but actually what the film needs you know and now for the discussion part hooray Hooray. discussion hey Uh, where to begin I've written down lots of things in big caps Uh, the first one I've written down in big caps uh, is improvement on the first movie question mark Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so shall we start with that? Yes, we've sorted that onto point two. <laughs> All right. Uh, do, you, do you feel Nick? You wrote the five star review of this. It's one of the reasons that we've summoned you to this council. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> in uh, I don't know quite what we're doing here. We're, you're, you're a massive Lord of the Rings fan. Um, yes. W- and were you disappointed with the first Hobbit? I was. Unexpected journey. I was. I, w- I was on the record as, as not. Uh, I, I came out quite underwhelmed. I just thought it was. Uh, it lacked urgency. Which, when you think back to Fellowship of the Ring, you know, the, the forces of evil are one step behind them, and it's really intense all the time. Unexpected journey. I actually didn't mind that, you know, people joke about all the dwarf breakfasting and, and dinnering and all the washing up and stuff. I, I quite enjoyed the stuff in Bag End, but I thought once they left, it was kind of a, a, a cycle of places you've already been to in the other films, and, and I didn't find it that thrilling. But I thought this one was a huge improvement, um, not least because it goes to new places. 
Such as what? What were the new places in this one? Let's, let's spell it out. Lake Town. Well, yeah. I mean, we hadn't been to Mirkwood before because they they skirted that to the south, north in Lord of the Rings. Um, they uh, we we also hadn't been to Lake Town and the Long Lake uh, of Esgaroth, and we hadn't been to the Lonely Mountain itself. Of course, we'd we'd seen some glimpses yeah. of that in the sort of prequel to the first film, in, in mm-hmm. the, the prologue, if you will, to the first film. But uh, but this is proper the desolation of Smaug. We mm-hmm. now see it. Interestingly, Gerard Tolkien apparently pronounced it Smaug. But Did he? Apparently, yeah. Apparently, he he told the uh, the radio adaptation in the seventies that it was pronounced smoke. Smoke. I'm totally calling it that from now. He on. was a man into his accents and circumflexes and umlauts and stuff. He so. was a language expert of some standing. Yes. Yeah. So we oh. should probably uh, smoke. I always thought it was smog, and then the film calls it smog. I thought it was smog. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Smog. I like that. Mm. Let's, let's call it smog from now on. If anyone uh, says we're wrong, let's play the JRR card. All right. Smog. The best card. Yeah. <laughs> Um, in terms of this one being better than the last one, I, I would totally agree with with everything that Nick said. I think it, it it is a big step up. I think the funny thing is, in adapting the book, this is a much funnier and sillier book than uh, than the Lord of the Rings, and that brings with it some problems. Uh, I think for for ad- for adapting it in a world where we already have Lord of the Rings, because they want it to be consistent in tone with that f- series that we already have, with that trilogy we already have. But at the same time, this is a very different book in tone. And I think in the first film, they didn't quite get that balance right because they had a lot of that kind of knockabout stuff and it didn't fit terribly well with the ringsy sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In this one, they've lost a lot of the the kind of the bumbling nature of the dwarves, which I think in some ways is a shame, but at least makes the film, I think, more consistent in itself. Yeah. Um, and I thought that, that, and it also does help, as you said, the urgency and, and gives it more of a sense of kind of drive towards the finish. Yeah. Were the dwarves that bumbly in the in the first one? Very much so. And I mean, if you think, you know, in the it, it actually, I, I do think it, it makes for some story problems. Just to jump ahead for a minute, when they arrive at the Lonely Mountain, Bilbo is the one who's sent in to, to go and see the dragon. Now, in the book, that makes sense, A, because we've established that the dwarves aren't all that. They're not that heroic. They're not that brave and that go-getting all the time. Um, and B, it makes sense because they know about the ring in the book at that point. Mm. Um Whereas in this film, you've literally got this quite heroic figure of Thorin and all the rest sending Bilbo off for no obvious mm. reason. He's a burglar. Well, he is a burglar, but they haven't really established, because again, they haven't established that they know about the ring. They haven't quite established why he would be the one to go, why he would definitely be him and there wouldn't really be any argument about it. Um, so, it's, it, I mean, it's not a big issue, but it's just well, there's little things like that, I think, that, that are quite I would say, given that the dwarves had five minutes before just decided to pack up and bugger off home for no reason whatsoever there's a certain lack of heroism in that can't find the key we've looked for at least 30 seconds let's just go home we've only been travelling for four and a half weeks I read an interview yesterday with Richard Armitage where he was asked about this and he was asked why Thorin is the most driven man in the world to do this quest that's Mm. his life and he just packs up and leaves after five minutes and he said in his head Thorin just goes around the corner and sits down with his head in his hands (laughs) so in his mind uh, but the film does the film does suggest that they just go I don't know where they're meant to be going yeah well I mean maybe they're looking for another way into the mountain. I don't well, think the giving up is necessarily the, the, the key there, but they do send Bilbo first, and none of them have the guts to go with him initially. But they are, Well, yeah, I think that, that that's part of the the, uh, the deepening and the darkening of Thorn Oakenshield's character, that he, he will use someone as a, a hobbit shield, if you will, and throw them, and throw them in to the dragon fire first. But I, also, they, they, do, they do give up, because quite frankly, they come on this quest, and they have a one in a million shot of getting through this door, and they think they haven't done it. So how else are they going to get into the mountain? There's only one entrance, as far as they're aware, and the uh, unique uh, conflation of circumstances 
that would make that possible have have not happened. As mm. far as Thorne Oakenshield is concerned, of course he'd bugger off. It's not like Wally well. World. They're not going to take a, a, <laughs> you know a guard hostage and make them take him on a ride or something. No, it kind of worked for me that scene anyway. I, I enjoyed it. I really liked it, yeah. and I, I also you know weirdly enough, even though I knew exactly what was going to happen, as Bilbo uh, accidentally is about to kick the key off the mountain, I actually <gasps> oh, <laughs> I went like that. Oh no! Where are they going to get in now? Oh, here's Thorne. It would have been four films. They good. would have added an extra film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the search for the key. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't give my ideas. We we are sort of obviously missing the the slight point that is this better than the first film? I would argue that a twelve hour documentary about Hobbit podiatry would have been better than the first film. <laughs> oh come on! Um, I I am James. I you think, had probably the most extreme yeah, upswing. I'm 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 I think the harshest critic of the first film, which I hated with the vengeance of a thousand ring wraiths. Um, <laughs> I thought it was incredibly self indulgent and incredibly tedious. Uh, not exactly in step with the official Empire opinion, but I, I really, really disappointed <laughs> me. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan of the the Lord of the Rings films, and and I went into this wanting this to be what I think a lot of people did, which was I wanted it to be a prequel to those films, um, and it wasn't. It felt a little bit like a sort of slightly farcical, comedic uh, romp through eight courses of lunch, uh, followed by washing up and doors throwing things at each other, and then, as Nick said, loads of places we've seen before and encounters that lacked any kind of heft. Um, and it, I think it was the tone that bothered me, and I think it was, uh, to be fair, there's a certain amount of cynicism in, in my head that they'd taken three very epic books and made three very epic films, and then here they'd taken a very sort of short, playful book and stretched it into three epic films, and it, it felt to me like they were trying to make it into something it wasn't, um, but not succeeding. And I think the key to this film is that they have continued on this bloody-minded quest to make it into something it wasn't, but in this one they've done it. Uh, they've actually made this into a Lord of the Rings prequel in the way that the first one wasn't. It has the right tone, it has the foreshadowing, had all the stuff in it, really, that I was looking for in the first film and didn't find. So while it, it isn't what I would call uh, faithful to the source material, I think that's a good thing. And the case. callbacks in this one generally, I think, are much more enjoyable. Mm. Like kicking off in Brie, uh, which was unexpected. I don't think nice. anyone predicted that. And with Peter Jackson. And with, with uh, one of my favourite, possibly my favourite cameo. Yeah. Eating a carrot thing, which is presumably the grandfather of the character that he plays in Fellowship of the Ring. So if you remember, there's yes. a shot in that in yeah. Brie, and you see the cat from Fellowship as well. Presumably, that's that that's cat's great great great. Yeah, I would say about that. Yeah, or a very long. I need, I need to pin that down. Yeah. So <laughs> we also see dogs in Middle Earth. We've have we seen dogs? We before? have. Yeah, there's yeah, a dog. There's okay. a dog from Fellowship. Gets scared by the ring wraith. Okay. Um, we've seen ferrets. We've uh. seen uh, bees now. Yes, giant, giant bees. Or giant three D. Some people on the internet had a problem with the bees. I mean, really, if you're having a problem with the bees, <laughs> well, I think that their problem is probably that it's the most flashy bit of three D in the film. Mm-hmm. It's the only bit of three D in the film that kind of goes and comes out the screen at you. Yeah. So maybe they, they were a bit bothered by that. I really like the breathing as well. I thought that was uh, it was very effective in establishing why Thorin is about to get so freaking obsessed with the Arkenstone because in the book he's just obsessed because it's a big jewel and it's the you know, it's it's important to him. It's the heart of the mountain, la la la. In this, it establishes an actual motive for him needing that, not just wanting it, but actually needing it. And I think in a, in a world where we also have the ring and we see the sort of corrosive effects of the ring on someone's psyche, you need to establish a different motive for being completely obsessed about the Arkansas. I thought they, they did that really well. And also it was just nice to be back in the Prancing Pony and see, you know, someone who for a second I thought mm. Aragorn was sitting in the corner and luckily ah. it wasn't, which would have been a bit too much. And you see Gandalf at the bar... When he goes in, he walks past Gandalf, yeah. which was a nice little bit. See him from behind. So I was just curious. I have forgotten at the end of the second film, mm. uh, this new one, does Bilbo have the Arkenstone or not? I think he does. We don't see him pick it up. 
you don't, you don't see that. But uh, when Thorin asks him where the Arkenstone is, has he seen it? He's very, very shifty. Mm. And I think that's because, I mean, in the book, he actually takes it and hides it and has it for quite some time uh, without the dwarves' knowledge. Um, while, while Thorin is basically tearing apart the mountain looking for it, I think we're going to have a little bit of the same kind of dynamic at the beginning of the third film. I think Bilbo has it. I think he's keeping it hidden because of reasons. Uh, and uh, and and that's going to become clear. But he he we haven't seen him pick it up. We don't know for certain. But that's certainly my understanding. There's a nice parallel there with the ring. The Arkansas yeah. is almost mm. like the ring for Thorin. Because you, you, you can you can understand why he would hang on to it. Because Thorin does obviously ask for it in a rather unpolite way. Yes, at sword. Stabbing point. at him with a sword. <laughs> yeah, Thorin Thorin's a, a dwarf on the edge uh, by the end of this film. I think uh, I think it's almost a relief for him actually when they get to some action and when they get to fight the dragon because he's actually finally getting to take concrete moves he's not just journeying anymore he's back at the mountain and he's actually you know attacking this thing that's taken everything from him speaking of that particular battle does anyone else think that the dwarves particular plan to fight the dragon was a little poorly thought out (laughs) i thought it was very well thought out uh i mean that's amazing it kind of almost worked it was just like, right, we're in a dead end. To the forges! We don't have any fire. There's a dragon! Excellent. Let's pour gold on its head. I think that's excellent riffing. That's good, that's good improv, man. <laughs> it's on the fly. It's yeah. MacGyverish. Absolutely. Um, I, I really... Um, it's a tricky one because I, I think this film does suffer. I really, really liked it a lot, but I, I think it does suffer from middle film syndrome. Mm. And uh, I think one of the, one of the major uh, manifestations of that is that none of the conflicts that this movie sets up in the last half an hour are resolved. Uh, which is really frustrating because even in The Empire Strikes Back mm. there's resolution within its cliffhangers. Mm. This doesn't. Yeah. And so they, they, they set up there's this huge action sequence where the dwarves take on Smaug and it doesn't work. You're spending half an hour in this wonderful, you know, this really complex, really intricate, really, really well-directed uh, action set piece and it has that lovely shot of Smaug staring at the golden statue mm. and then the statue sl- slowly melts and covers him in gold. But it doesn't work. And you're just thinking, well, that's a bit pointless, isn't it? The last mm. 20 minutes have just been utterly for nothing. Apart from the, the they've angered Smaug to the point where he's now yeah. going to take it out in Lake Town. But they anger him to the point where he decides then not to kill them, but to go and kill Lake Town instead. Like, he could have eaten Bilbo. Because he feels that will uh, anger or affect Bilbo. Uh, he's quite petty for a dragon, isn't he? I guess so. But he has just woken up. He has. <laughs> he's a, a little cranky. Talking it, of I that... That big action sequence. I did uh, one of the most Peter Jacksonian things in the film was uh, the shot of Thorin of a wheelbarrow. It's like who else would put a shot of someone with a wheelbarrow in the big final set piece of well, a film of that scale? Surfing. A... I just love that. Yeah, just running around with wheelbarrow-based action. Yeah, is that when he surfs on the the, the sort of lake of of golden? Yeah. Yeah, metal. but even just yeah. before that, when he's sort of just oh, okay. yeah, he's scooting around with it. It's well, you know, Titchmarsh. Nick, of. Nick and I are probably uh, the biggest Peter Jackson fans in this in this booth, and uh, you know, particularly I'm a huge fan of early Peter Jackson, and I, you know, I really really like this movie because it reminded me a lot of Brain Dead and and Bad Taste and Meet the Feebles, even in a way, not really, but you know, in terms of that sort of very dark sensibility, there was a lot mm. of uh, glee and grew in this movie. Didn't really see a lot of splatter, but there was some. Of, Really spectacular kills. One arrow, real- two heads. One arrow, two heads. There were people's, you know, well, not people's, orcs' heads yeah. being lopped off left, right, and centre. I really enjoyed that. It was full violent, wasn't it? And there was also the sort of the, the surrealist touches in, especially in Mirkwood, when they're sort of they're already a bit kind of tripped out on. I believe it's meant to be spores in the air um, have have made them quite so trippy at the beginning. But uh, but it's it's got this really kind of you know weird tilted off-kilter feel there which I thought was very very It's interesting you mention that because I didn't I I remember you saying this when we came out I didn't realise it was spores at all I thought it was some weird sort of 
hallucinogenic magic or something. It's sort of a ketamine forest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We've been eating the mushrooms. Yeah. So, yeah, no, uh, yeah. We had to explain the phrase tripping balls to Martin Freeman yesterday. But um, <laughs> it's essentially that. Uh, but yeah, no, the Merkwood stuff was great. I mean, they're just little licks of, of personality, yeah, which I felt exactly. the, the last film felt a little bit generic. I also liked how um, the Merkwood sequence, and Helen, you'll, you've recently read the book, you've got it there on your desk right in front of you, um, how it got over the problem of the spiders talking. Because obviously the, the first book is the children's book and the, the, the trolls talk mm. that they meet in the first in the first movie, the, the spiders talk as well in the book, uh, Smaug talks, which is just kind of, brushed over because he's a massively powerful dragon and of course he speaks and of course he has Benedict Cumberbatch's voice that's just natural but I really liked how they, they made the spiders talk when, when Bilbo puts on the ring mm. and the idea is that you know the, the evil of the ring allows Bilbo to uh, parcel tongue it with the uh, with, <laughs> with the spiders and I really really liked that and I also liked the way that Bilbo is slowly but surely being not not corrupted, not by the ring, but it is. It, you can tell it's it's weighing on him. He, he's immediately wary of it, which I think is good. I think because yeah. he is the one who carries the ring for longer than anyone anyone good. Yeah. You know, he has it for longer than Frodo does by yes. quite some distance. Yes. And so you need to establish that he is immediately a little bit suspicious of its power. And I think that was done really well in this film in, in, in a way that wasn't done in the book. But I guess it wasn't necessary in the book because the ring's importance only became clear in Lord of the Rings. And even then. The ring's corrupting effects were were a little bit more. Uh, they weren't as developed in the in the book of Lord of the Rings, I think, as they were on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the way that uh, Martin Freeman tentatively, and this is a, a horrible phrase, I know, but fingers the ring every time he he's about to put it on. <laughs> uh, you know, where he's like, I know this is a bad idea, but I well, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. And I really like the sequence early on with, with Gandalf, where he's on the verge of telling him that he's discovered the ring. And his voice just cracks. I think Martin Freeman's fantastic. In this he, thing. Is, yeah. he won the he won the Empire Award last year, and he was very very self deprecating about that, going, "Oh, this isn't proper acting. It's a it's a big uh, you know glossy blockbuster. I'm not really. I'm just turning up and, and running around and stuff." But I think he's I think he's fantastic. I think his performance across these two films so far is one of, if not the best performance across all five films to date. I think he he really brings Bilbo to life, and it's a shame in a way that I don't I don't think Bilbo gets enough to do in this movie. Yeah. He agreed with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said that himself to yeah. us. He was like, it's called The Hobbit. It is called The Hobbit. Um, but I'm sure there are deleted, a lot of deleted stuff. Yeah. He, he hinted as much. There's, I, there's yeah, it feels like there's a lot more deleted here. I think yeah. in Lake Town, I think there are probably some feast scenes sure uh, deleted. There's, in that definitely some proper thing. extended edition, I yeah. think. I think yeah. but, I'm, but I'm looking forward to it. I think there's um, one, of, one of my favourite Bilbo moments is when he murderises that giant woodlice, uh, woodlouse, <laughs> which appears to be trying to put the ring on, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. If it got the ring on, would that would giant woodlouse rule Middle-earth? Well, you know what? It might I mean, coming back to genuinely, I'm just going to deal with this like a geek. Coming back to the idea of language, uh, the oh God, the ring go. has its root in the same source of evil as the spiders, because the spy those spiders are related to Shelob, uh-huh. the the spider we saw in, in Return of the King or in the Book of Two Towers, um, and and she is descended from the same big bad, like the devil, basically, that Sauron used to serve. So all traces back to the same evil root. So if that spider put on the ring, it'd probably be bad news for Middle-earth. So it was a spider? It looked it like was, it was a baby of, spider, I think. It was a okay. baby spider. A baby spider. Oh, See, that's what makes it all the more horrific that he butchers it. I think that's a very important moment in this because that ring is just the MacGuffin of all MacGuffins, isn't it? It's the get-out-of-jail-free yeah. card. You can do anything with it. And they have to establish that he doesn't want to use it, otherwise he'd be using it all the time. Um, yeah, even though he does you, use it a fair old bit. You do think immediately uh, when he uh, goes into Smaug's lair, sorry, Smaug's lair, and uh, and starts poking around, you think, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking, put on the ring. 
put it put it on put on the ring and of course he does eventually mm. once his life's at stake yeah, but he, it, in know. the book he has it on that whole time yeah in the lair yeah. but he fears yeah. it in this and exactly. rightly so because so, it's made it's, him go it's interesting helen as you said that uh in the book the dwarves are aware of the, the ring uh fairly early on what about gandalf well, he, uh, 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 well gandalf isn't there at this point he he tells gandalf later yeah um but in the uh, basically he tells the dwarves uh when it, they're in the elven dungeons i think is is the point where it becomes or maybe it's Maybe it's the spiders. I literally just read it last night and I've already forgotten. Well done me. Um, but basically, he he has to re-read sort of explain it. to them. Re-read yeah, re-read it. Yeah, I should make, make that clear. Re-read it, I think, probably. But um, <laughs> I think uh, he, they, he has to explain to them how he's able to do all of this stuff. And that's, you know, so they know that they have that at their disposal. They know yeah. that he has it. The difficulty with this, of course, is that they're dealing with a retcon situation on Tolkien's part, aren't they? Where the Hobbit was written, and then he decided afterwards that this ring was the ring, and we're now dealing with a narrative that doesn't have that information as part of it. So it's obviously having to be introduced and woven in, which is quite a delicate job. And I think yeah. he's doing a pretty good job of it. Yeah, he does. I mean, uh, he, I think he he said uh, about the writing of the book that he had a notion that the ring was important. And and that was why it immediately leapt out when he started work on a sequel, which which started off as a children's book and then ended up obviously as not quite that. So correct. Okay, I'm a little bit confused. Sure. So presumably in in the third film, which is called Laren Back Again. Yes. Mm-hmm. Presumably in the third film, Laren Back Again, Gandalf will discover that Bilbo has his ring. So why did they wait sixty years to try and destroy it? Will Gandalf not make the connection right away that it is the ring? Yeah, he doesn't know it's the ring. He know it. He knows it's a ring, okay. but he doesn't know it's the ring until he puts it in the fire uh, with Frodo at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. Okay. So it's 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 a weird like the the timeline of Fellowship was actually compressed a bit because in the book Bilbo leaves on his hundred eleventieth birthday. Um, but it's and, and at that point Frodo is 33 it's not until Frodo turns 50 that Gandalf comes back and they have that whole discussion about the ring and, and basically in, in the film it, it's essentially later mm. that same night so there's like Gandalf goes away and does a lot of searching and does a lot of research before he, he a lot of got, long gets, lonely walks in the moors well I think he basically spends time in the library at Gondor but sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> he basically goes off and and researches how what this ring is how could it be the one ring has it come to bilbo and and then goes back to establish the case with the fire okay cool um we should talk about uh, some other elements of the movie uh let's talk about i guess new characters let's start with that shall we mm-hmm. um not just new characters in terms of characters we haven't seen before in the franchise uh in the in the in the series uh bard the woman for example mm-hmm. Bjorn, the bear man, at the, uh, at the beginning of the movie, but also new characters created especially for the movie, uh, like Toriel, played by Evangeline Lilly. Uh, so let's start with her, actually, because she forms this very, I think, controversial love triangle, uh, very bold love triangle, between uh, Legolas, Killy and uh, Toriel. What do we think of that one? Yeah, I think only controversial for Tolkien purists. It doesn't seem to be angering your average film goes, although it hasn't come yeah. out yet, but it certainly hasn't been sort of raged about in reviews that I've seen. Um, I mean, like I said in my review, the fact he looks like an elf anyway, to, to my eyes, that makes it not particularly... I mean, I was more bothered by the fact that it's, it feels so similar to the Aragorn-Arwen situation, where it's mm. like forbidden love. And even the stuff with the herbs felt like a throwback, although that was with Frodo in Fellowship. But yeah. I, I was more bothered by none of that felt that fresh to me, that stuff. It, felt, it felt a little contrived to me. And I, I, 
I just want to strike a blow. I mean, it's, it's lovely that we're having you know interspecies uh, mating in this in this <laughs> in this series. But honestly, couldn't she have just gone for a dwarf that looks like a dwarf? She's been a bit shallow. Bomber. I mean, Aiden Turner is a very good-looking guy. Yeah, Bomber. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Bomber, frankly, deserves some uh, some nookie after his his barrel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his insane barrel stuff. His final moment of greatness. Uh, we'll get onto the barrel stuff later. See, I have. Killy is the only dwarf without prosthetics. Presumably for this reason. And there was discussion in the office yesterday about his, about dwarf hands, right? Because oh, you, see, yes. you see them kind of hold hands. Yeah. Yeah. Surely they his really hand should be me. like a little mouse hand. Yeah, yeah. they got yeah. the proportions all wrong there. Yeah, absolutely. He's got massive dwarf hands. You know what they say about dwarf hands? <laughs> well, and, and what I think we all were thinking at that time when they got together was the Vern Troyer sex video. So, uh, <laughs> oh. 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 <laughs> oh. I think you've just so, killed Helen. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. Tell you what, I'm going to Google it. I'll start watching. You guys just talk about the film. I'll just. It shouldn't take that long. I actually got quite upset by the dwarf hands. Generally, I find them really distracting. Did Once, I really just uh, mean that one shot of Toriel? And, no, no, not that the, really. Not the, size was, of the, the sausage hands. fingers. The okay. sausage fingers. They looked like they were wearing gloves at all times, yeah. and and it. it once I noticed it in about the first 10 minutes, I couldn't stop looking at their hands. They all have these giant sausage fingers. Oh, I haven't spotted that yet. Oh, it's That's it's really upsetting. You absolute dwarfist. I am a dwarfist, clearly. But yeah, no, I was, I was you know, quite They've comforted. done a lot of smelting, Helen. You know, <laughs> I, if you smelt... That will happen. You know what? I, I, I don't. I didn't object to the to the romance. I know it's got a lot of heat. The thing is, the, the books and indeed the films are quite notoriously asexual, and I think it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of romance action in there. Yeah, it's a massive um, sausage hands fest. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there are basically no female characters in the whole book. Well, they're in the appendices, aren't they? Yeah, I didn't yeah, mind it. I just thought there are thirteen dwarves, you know, and I want to spend more time with most of them. And just you know, find out what makes them tick. And I thought adding new characters in that aren't in the book takes away the screen time. You know, there's that there's that part where it all slows down, where they're in um, the 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 elf prison, mm. and uh, I wanted to kind of see how the other ones were doing. And instead, all the screen time is spent on Killy and um, Taria. There's there's an, it feels I think you're right. I think it feels like there's not a lot of depth to the dwarves. Though you do start to distinguish between them more, I think, in this film. In the first one, yeah, they there's all the one who doesn't have a line. There's the one who has one line. <laughs> and one who has two lines. Well, kind of Dory, Ori, and Nori have still got basically nothing going on. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I think you know. I I, I get that adding a, a character is always going to be controversial, but you've got a cast of literally what seventeen men. It, it's if you're going to add one, add a woman. I didn't mind, you know. And when she was doing action stuff, I thought great. She was very this good. Is, this yeah. is brilliant, and you know, she's a female Legolas, which you know, again begs the question: she's Why? She's literally they have to bring, a Legolas. Why do they have to bring Legolas back? <laughs> if they, you know, maybe they should have just introduced her and not brought Legolas back. But I thought she was fine. I just, I just found that particular storyline a little bit generic. Mm. Yeah, I just, didn't, I didn't, I didn't believe it. I didn't buy it. There was just, you know, there were just too many shots of lingering glances and, and lingering looks that were meant to make us think that there was chemistry there but I didn't actually discern any actual chemistry Oh I think that's them. a bit unfair I, I quite like the two of them together but then you know oh, Aiden make lo- Turner and Evangeline Lilly I buy it They'll make lovely dwarf babies or whatever the dwarf. a dwarf and an elf's uh, offspring is called What would their Brangelina name be? Kiliel 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 That's a name actually Yeah Oh my god it's all a right-wing conspiracy. Speaking Shh. of el- elven interludes, what do people think about uh, Legolas? Yeah. Happy to see you. <laughs> <laughs> An underwhelming response I to really, the elven I avenger. Really, I really liked him. I thought he, I thought he worked. I thought he, 
you know, and correct me if I'm wrong again, I'm not a, as big a fan of Lord of the Rings trilogy as you guys are. Um, he got way more to do in this one than he has mm. in any of the previous movies. And I liked that. It was good seeing Orlando Bloom back in the, on mm. the big screen. It was like, oh, hello. Yeah, yeah there you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember you. Where, where have you been? I, qu- I quite enjoyed the, the sly little line about Gimli. Who's, mm. who's this mutated beast or Mutant goblin. Was. Mutant <laughs> goblin. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> that was really cute. I have a question about, okay, so Tario is standing there looking off into a lake town in one scene and then turns around and Legolas is standing behind her with his bow on her. Yes. Yeah. Like, why? It's passive aggressive. Why is he literally <laughs> aiming his arrow ahead? Yeah. Saying if you were an orc, you'd be dead, which isn't true because if he'd been an orc, she would have killed him five times by then. Yeah. Um, the orcs are a bit crap in this film, aren't they? Let's be honest. Where'd they I mean, come not from? crap, not crap, as in crap at murder yes. crap, killing, killing, killing people, killing well, good people. what else is an orc meant to be good at <laughs> if, if an orc isn't task. good at murder then it is by definition crap a crap orc yeah. so yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a crook that doesn't make any sense do, you, um, do, do we think there should have been one or two deaths good guy deaths in this film I, I think um, right if anyone who danger, read danger the, spoilers approach yes yeah. we, we will be discussing uh, film three and the book now so okay anyone who's read the book knows that a bunch of the dwarves are going to get killed. Well, not a bunch. Next, well, a bunch. A, a the ones you care, the ones you, all the ones you <laughs> yes, care about. A no, brace more of than, dwarves. A brace is two. A barrel no. of dwarves. So it's more than no, more than a brace. It's more than a two. And it's less than thirteen. It's less than thirteen and more than two. This That's is correct. Sticking yes. that number. Um, Let's not but, reveal who. Okay. Okay. But but I think so. Maybe they're they're saving some up for that. I did think at one point they were going to kill somebody, but they didn't. And uh, yeah, it would have been. It, you could have done without somebody. Like you could have lost again, Dory, Ori, or Nori. Um, in the barrel sequence, uh, just yeah. but then maybe they they were worried about slowing it down for everybody to grieve, and they didn't want to. I think the barrel sequence is so sort of gleeful and silly and yeah. fun that I think killing someone in that would have been a mistake. I do think that the smog smog scene uh, could have done. You know, it needed a bit of that Empire Strikes Back. Just whoa. And you know, if he'd singed a few dwarves and then and then headed <laughs> off to later, I don't know. I I I uh, personally feel that Radagast should have gone down in this. I think this would have been yeah, the, the Dolgador sequence. But Radagast been... needs to, as Gandalf says, you know, go and see Lady Galadriel, and then but off he goes. And Gandalf you know. earlier in the film has a little psychic. That's true. Chat I, Skype with. Uh... Well, that's more of a flashback. I would have thought. <laughs> No, that talk, a, no, no. He talks. To is that is that a talk? Yes, I thought they, they, they can communicate. They've shown that before. That they well, can she communicate. she says in the first film, "If ever you need me, then just call 0898 <laughs> <laughs> and, They've both and got she the, will appear. They've yeah. both got the elf rings. So oh, they can talk. They've of, course, of course they have. They've established in the film that they can talk. So I don't. That's another thing I don't quite. I get. think he's trying to get rid of him because, frankly, Radagast, <laughs> Radagast is a bit shit. It's you really just on your bike, on your rabbit sled, and cock off. I would have loved it if Gandalf and Radagast had gone into Dolgadur like on a mission, two wizards together, and more exciting stuff, frankly, had happened and <laughs> Radagast had been taken down. It would have established, for one thing, that, that Sauron is properly powerful now, that he can kill a wizard, whereas we haven't seen him really do anything. I like the picture you're painting there, Nick, of two wizards going together into Dolgodur. What happens in Dolgodur stays in Dolgodur. I think <laughs> I know what the relationship you're hinting at there. We've mentioned Dolgodur here. Now. This was an interesting one. I know that you had slight reservations about this. In that Dolgodur, weirdly, was my favourite part of this film. Um, not because of the action sequence in it, but of kind of what it represented. I really liked uh, earlier on the, the going to the Witch King's tomb. I thought it was a wonderful bit of foreshadowing. And just going to Dolgador and, and, and the confrontation with Sauron and the eye and the sort of eye within the eye within the eye. And it, that really, more than anything else, anchored this in the Lord of the Rings films to me. Yeah. Uh, and I just thought it was fabulous. Hmm. It, it would have been, I think you're right, it would have been cool to see the two wizards actually 
full-on fight with powers, which we haven't really seen except when, you know, Saruman, uh, Saruman and Gandalf kind of laid into each other. Pushing people against walls with sticks. Well, you know, it, it worked anyway. But, you know, I would have that would have been quite cool, the two of them back-to-back, fighting an orc army. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think we can be pretty sure given Radagast's non-appearance in Lord of the Rings, that he's going down next time. I think they're f- saving all their big deaths for the Battle of the Five Armies. That's Possibly. I, I mean, uh, we know that Gandalf is imprisoned at the end of uh, of this movie in Dol Guldur, and mm-hmm. presumably Radagast and his... And Sebastian might come back, who knows? <laughs> with, his, with his quill power. And, uh, and take out some orcs. I would guess Radagast will rescue Gandalf... Yes. Wow. Um, and then uh, regenerate. I, set off to together. I got sent in the post yesterday the making of this film a <gasps> book, which has a photo which is clearly from film three because oh, really? uh, it's, it involves Radagast's bunny sled and Gandalf and and something happening which we haven't seen yet. Are they so, sipping cocktails and Dol Gadura? <laughs> yes, they are. The rabbits are kicking back, <laughs> earning twenty percent. <laughs> the rabbits need to get in on the action, and start kicking people to death. But yeah, there was a sense there was a sense in this film definitely that the baddies have, have uh, stepped their game up. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not quite clear how they've managed to catch up with the dwarves, given they were on an eagle. Uh, how how are they right behind them at the beginning of this film? Yeah, precisely. Sure. And yeah. also the geography of this movie is a bit all over the place, and the timeline is as well in that wonderful Empire Strikes Back way of it takes Han and Leia not much time at all to get from Hoth to Bespin, but in that time Luke becomes a Jedi essentially. You know that that classic time frame thing. For example, in this movie it takes the, the dwarfs and Hobbit and Bilbo uh, ages to get anywhere, and then. Uh, an orc comes back and says to Azog, the defiler, "Oh, by the way, you're wanted in Dol Guldur. Oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just nip. I'll just, yeah, it's just five minutes, just around the corner. How close is everything in this movie? Well, the wargs are faster than the dwarves, and the eagles didn't take them very far. They just took them, you know, to to the edge of the other side of the mountains. They've it still got to get seems, across the plain. It seemed quite far to Mirkwood. It was quite a quite a long sequence in the movie. Um, well, no, it was just kind of a, a, along the mountains, along the mountain range, because they're. Uh, oh, we don't go south of the river this time in the night, Gov. <laughs> Pretty much. And Stephen Merchant describes it, they're the Ryanair of Middle Earth. That's really harsh. I mean, they're easy jet at worst, you know. Um, but no, they they actually become, they're meant to have become more important between now and Lord of the Rings. The, the, the Lord of the Eagles becomes King of All Birds after getting a, a golden circlet or something from the dwarves in between then and Amazing. then. Amazing. The eagles shall return in there and back again. They, <laughs> exactly. They play a pretty major part. All the, the, um, all the rage these days is, is spin-offs. We just had two Spider-Man spin-offs announced. I want to see a giant eagles movie. <laughs> just, that would be well, fun. It's just them haggling with people, prices haggling to with people take people. Just, oh, I can get you as far as uh, Dale. <laughs> just, yeah, picking people up, put them on their backs and taking off and then just landing again. Would the, would the soundtrack be by the eagles? Yes. Yes. <laughs> It, it, I suppose. Side. <laughs> Can I just say, for a film called *The Desolation of Smaug*, the one thing we haven't really discussed is Smaug. Is Bard the Bowman? Is Bard the Smog? Is is Smaug well, Smaug? Smaug. Let's, let's talk. Um, let's talk before we get on to Smaug. Um, let's talk about a couple of other quick things. We don't have a lot of time left, but um, Legolas, good. We agreed. Yeah, yes. all good. Yeah. Legolas, good. Let's move on. Uh, Bard the Bowman, Luke Evans. Luke Evans, bloody Welsh, isn't he? Let's let's do it. I thought he was great. I really yeah. liked him. I thought they they did a really good job of of building up his character and making him giving him a bit more weight and a bit more interest and a bit more of a backstory without actually really changing anything that he is in the book. Because this is a guy in the book who appears in, am I correct me if I'm yep. wrong here, in one page. 
It's pretty much. It's it's certainly sort of a chapter and a half. He he is yeah. very important. He does He's play very a role. Important. Yes. Um, he does play a very major role. And and you know, can you later guess what on, that role is? People who've seen the film. <laughs> can you guess what this man with this giant arrow <laughs> yes. might do with it? Can you guess what the descendant of the man who failed to kill Smog with an that was a black arrow? That was all great though. I can't wait to. You know, yeah. I really uh, they did a great job. I thought of painting him as this underdog in the town. Yeah, he does. Again, I have an unanswered question. Um, Bring it. Why? Okay, so he is with the dwarves, and the master goes, "Hey, you're, you're welcome." And then they all get sent off as heroes. And then next time we see him, he's being chased around the town by Stephen Fry and his sidekick uh, Alfred. Well, he's and not- gets knocked out and put in prison. Bard is never seen as the master by the master as a hero. No, no. Okay, but why is he? Is he on the run when we meet him in the film? Because he's, what has he done? To- he's seen as he's seen as a troublemaker, and uh, and so the dwarves basically the master doesn't seem to have much choice about treating them well because everybody in town thinks they're great, whereas everyone in town is inclined to maybe think about following Bard, and that's more of a worry because he's right there, whereas the dwarves are going to be packed off. Interestingly, in the book, the dwarves stay there for about two weeks, and here they're literally there overnight. Which I liked. Yeah. It was quite, very brisk, the, the yeah. second half, I thought. Um, but I was just confused about why he was arrested, because he didn't seem to be on the run when we met him. I think it's on the cards. You can see from when he first enters Lake Town that he's in the Master's Bad Book. He's an insurgent. Uh, yeah, and the, it's just a matter of time. Sure. The master was very fun. I, I would, you know, Stephen Fry was 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 really brought a little bit more comedy mm. in yeah, back. Yeah, I, 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 I wasn't yeah. wild about that character. I'll be honest. I mean, I also thought that the 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 Bard storyline with the the Black Arrow. I mean, this is this is it's a bit harsh on Bard to be honest. At one point in this movie, he's castigated for being the, the descendant of a man who failed to pull off a one in a billion shot yeah. at a giant dragon, and for some reason <laughs> that has brought great shame upon Bard and his family. But I I kind of I thought it was a little bit too convenient that he just happens to have the one remaining black arrow just hanging around in his kitchen. That's great. It, it might have been nice if they'd had a, if he'd had to go on a quest if the master had had it in a in a dungeon, for example. Fourth and he movie. Had to find it. But Fourth yeah, movie. would yeah. we would we then have complained that it was all taking a bit too long? I, I think I think I that was know. kind of fair enough. If, it, if it's part of the family history, I think that that's There's okay. already a quest to find his tea towel with, yes. the, uh, with the prophecy <laughs> on it. If only we had a black arrow. You mean this black arrow? It just seemed a little bit pat. Uh, Bjorn, the bear man. We mentioned him uh, at the very very beginning. Uh, our thoughts on this one? Is this this is obviously a holdover from mm. the book? Uh, could this scene have been cut maybe and not really affected the narrative that much? Um, I, I guess then you'd only have the problem of explaining how the dwarves got to Mirkwood ahead of the orcs that are chasing them on giant wolves. Uh, the, the advantage of having Bjorn is that then you see that they get horses. Um, and also, it, it's a really cool scene in the book. I, I kind of wish there'd been a little bit more of that kind of playfulness in that scene because instead of being chased by this giant bear they kind of almost trick their way in in a way that's quite charming and you see Gandalf actually at work in the book which would have been nice but that said I thought it was a it was a momentary it was a very quick scene really all things considered and I, I, I like that he was still in there and we, we lost Tom Bombadil which is fine Screw from him. Lord of the Rings yeah. Screw him. Um, Screw him. but I think you would have lost a little bit more I think Beorn's a cooler character than Tom Bombadil so I was kind of pleased to see him and we're going to see a rampaging bear Exactly. Battle. Bears, hurrah. All right, in the Battle of the Five Armies. You wish armies. to ride me. You wish to ride me. Okay, yeah, Nick, barrels, go. Barrels. Barrels. Uh, they were, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. I, in my view, the best part of the film by quite a long way. Smaug was also brilliant, but I thought the barrels... I got the goosebumps factor that I got from, you know, the big... I was One of my complaints about the last film was that it didn't have that huge set piece, the Helm's Deep, the Mines of Moria... And the Pelennor Fields. This wasn't on the scale of that stuff, but I just loved it. I thought it was like adrenaline rush of a sequence. 
I want that in a theme park and I want it now. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. And it looked very, very arduous to shoot as well. Obviously, there's a lot of CG in there as well. Apparently, but, um, it was awesome. They all had the greatest time. So really? It's like yeah. a log flume, isn't but it? But it, it, it even has that scene where they have to pull it. It's, it starts and then it stops, which I think is genius. Like, you go, hey, here we go. And then it stops almost immediately. And then they have to have a fight to pull the lever to open it. It was just so well thought out. And then they keep yeah. the elves turn up. And you're like, oh, this is bad. And then the orcs turn up on top of that, and it just keeps piling yeah, up the stuff. And the stuff with the bomber spinning around, bomber, bomber spinning, spinning around. In Shot the of the movie. That was really, really funny. Yeah. yeah. Really good. Um, yeah, I didn't think it was quite as brilliant as I thought as you had pitched it to me, but, but it's very, very good. I think I prefer the final showdown with Smaug, to be honest. But, wow. But in as terms of invention and being Peter Jackson-y, that's, uh, I thought it was a very, very, very good sequence indeed. Um, so that's... I'd like to give a quick shout out to Thranduil, who I thought was great. We oh, haven't, yeah, we haven't touched on him. him at all. Lee Pierce uh, is one of those actors that I, I, I always think is pretty good. The in Pie stuff. Man. The Pie Man. The Pie Man. Yes, from Pushing Daisies. Also, the bad guy in Lincoln. Um, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, indeed. Uh, where I think he would be rather good. But but this, he was almost, he, he had a kind of sinuous, kind of snaky quality. When he's when he's bending almost double to talk to mm. Thorin, I thought he was he was really kind of sinister without actually being evil which I thought was a nice line to walk and um, again correct me if I'm wrong being very very dense today um, the, the scene where he's, he's talking to uh, Thorin yeah. and he seems to reveal what his true face looks like so he's been singed by Dragonfire is that the idea? I think and that's the idea he's hiding it with elfin magic? yeah that's, that's like a glamour spell yeah exactly yeah. that's that's pretty new but uh, that that was what I took from it certainly there were a lot of uh, little throwbacks I mean I think for kids young kids this movie could be quite scary a lot of the orcs uh, CG and I think there were a lot of practical orcs in this one which I was glad to see yes. um, reminded me an awful lot of uh, the sort of demons from Sam Raimi's Evil Dead movie, The Deadites, and uh, you know their white eyes and their feral-looking faces. If I was like a six-year-old kid watching this movie, I'd, I'd be crapping my pants. But you make a valid point there in that the, the orcs are quite scary in this, and they do look more Lord of the Rings. And the tonal shift in the design is quite different from the first one. I mean, take the the Goblin King, who's yeah. obviously Barry Humphrey's character, is laughably comical. Yeah. And there's a lack of that in this one. The the head orc in this, obviously not the Defiler, his lieutenant. What's his name? Bolg. Yes. My understanding is that his his design changed. Yes. I mean, uh, with the with unexpected journey, um, Azog uh, changed at the eleventh hour. Literally, I think a matter of weeks or maybe a month before the film came out they decided to completely scrap the practical orc who had shot all the scenes and then they put Manny Bennett's mocap uh, version over it and they did the same with this one I'm not sure at what stage but there was photos if you google Bolg mm. you'll find a picture of this giant like ginger sort of angry Scots looking uh, orc and they have completely scrapped that and put a different version over the top. It feels to me a lot, and I'm, I think Peter Jackson's been quite upfront about the fact that from a tonal point of view, the first film isn't what the fans wanted. And it seems that he's made every effort to shift the tone of this film to keep it in line with Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings films and to keep it in line with what, what fans are looking for. And, and I think that, that orc is, is, is well, evidence of that. No, I still would have preferred the practical one, frankly. Really? But, yeah. With the ginger beard? Uh, well, it's who knows. Maybe that footage will come out at some point. Maybe it will. But I like practical orcs. You like practical ginger beard orcs? Okay, let's move on then to, uh, you know, let's end with Smaug. Um, the movie builds up to him. I think the reveal of Smaug is fantastic. What are we? What's your take on Smaug as a character? Does it work? What about Benedict Cumberbatch's voice? What about the design? What about the fire? What about everything? <laughs> I was massively down with Cumberbatch's voice, perhaps unsurprisingly. And uh, and I thought that the, the sort of the dragon performance, if you like, was, was great. I didn't 100% love the dragon I have strong feelings on dragons as you know 
And I don't know. I, I saw, <coughs> yep. I saw Smaug as a bit shinier and redder. Um, not shiny enough, not red enough. These are your. I know this is sounding. I don't so know. You're a it's something about and a dragonist. Yeah. I am something about the dragon's design didn't utterly make me, you know, fall in not fall in love with him, but but happy about him. Uh, he wasn't a hundred percent my Smaug. But that said. Uh, I thought the the sequence was well done, and I thought Cumberbatch's performance. I thought some bits where you could sort of trace the emotions in the face were, were brilliantly put together. I, I, I must admit, I disagree with you on this. I thought he was magnificent. Uh, I also thought he was magnificent. Yes, indeed, smell magnificent. I, I I particularly liked the cavernous room that was in, the, which allowed him to have motion. And I think my biggest worry with the confrontation with the dragon is that this enormous great lizard is going to basically be. He's in a building. He's going to be immobile he's going to be stuck sort of wriggling around and occasionally breathing fire but that wasn't the case yeah. you know that he's constantly in motion when he's talking to Bilbo he's shifting he's sliding he's wrapping himself around columns and I think you really get a sense of sort of the elegance and, and the sort of all the sadism of this beast um, and Cumberbatch just breathes such life into that character with the he, voice he does monologue quite a bit though it, you do catch him monologuing yeah, but yeah. he's I mean he's a dragon who's going to stop yeah. him Who's go- who's going to interrupt? Who, who could possibly stop him? Which <laughs> descendant? Oh, yeah. um, he's the he's the Auric Goldfinger of the series. <laughs> he loves gold. He doesn't yeah, like strap Bilbo down to a, a table, get his laser out. But there's so many nice little touches to the the thing. I love yeah. the the coins that are kind of wedged into his belly that keep that start dropping mm. down. Um, and I really enjoyed the King Kong throwback where Thorin is standing on his uh, snout, or whatever it's called, at one point, which yes. is an identical shot, basically, from King Kong uh, with the T-Rex. We did kind of lose the uh, the scene in the book where Bilbo steals a cup, gets away with it, and then Smog wakes up and goes crazy, uh, which was kind of a little bit of a shame because then Bilbo goes back again for more, and, and at that point they, he kind of twigs to him and finds him but I guess at that point they wanted to keep things moving yeah. pretty fast and didn't have time for the sort of two visit mm. build up I loved it I loved the big reveal I loved Martin Freeman's fear uh, trembling with fear as yeah. the gold coins slowly and he begins to oh god I've woken this thing up haven't I yeah. <laughs> oh this is bad when he's trying to creep across a mountain of gold coins that, yeah. are, that are inevitably just snaking away underneath him that was, that was lovely there's also a lovely moment when he first puts a ring on and you get a feeling a smile can still see him but then obviously it's, it's not it's a it's a bluff but I, I was thinking to myself oh hang on this is interesting oh shit um, fried Bilbo is on the agenda <laughs> this is a big change for the book yeah <laughs> but, um, number three will be the deep fried hobbits <laughs> yeah. there and back again <laughs> we're going to have to remake the new trilogy but yeah I, re- I, I thought it was a fantastic character well handled so shall we do some predictions of what's going to happen in the next one very quick very quick with very Helen quick. holding people the get book burned. <laughs> more people will get burned uh, how to get burned yeah this is interesting I mean going, going back to middle movie syndrome and what I was saying about this setting up a lot of conflicts and not resolving them so uh, Legolas is last scene chasing after Bolg. Bolg? Bolg. Bolg. That's not resolved. Uh, Bard the Bowman in prison. That's not resolved. Uh, the, the dragon escapes from Thorin and the gang. That's not resolved. It's clearly heading towards Lake Town. And I thought that would have been the end of this movie. I thought we would have um, and we are getting the spoiler territory here. I thought this movie would have ended with uh, the death of Smaug. It isn't which clearly means that it's going to um, it's going to be what the first 10-15 minutes of the next movie? So then yeah, I think it, I that? think it's going to open with a huge attack on Lake Town, um, the death of the dragon, um, and then you're going to have a momentary lull while everybody kind of gets around that. You're going to have refugees from Lake Town going, "What do we do now?" Bard coming into his own as the killer of the dragon and saying, "Right, we're marching off to Dale because now there's nothing to stop us." So they're going to pitch up at the gates to the Lonely Mountain, um, and also you're going to have the news of Smaug's death 
you know, rippling across Middle Earth. I mean, this is all what, what happens in the book, but you're going to have everybody turning up to get a piece of that gold and that's going to be the setup for the Battle of the Five Armies and that is going to be epic. And don't it's forget the rabbits. Gandalf's in prison. It's all going to kick off. It's going to be, uh, hopefully, a fantastic and fitting conclusion. That's it for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, or Smog, spoiler podcast. Uh, join us next time. I think it's going to be next year now, uh, probably for Captain America, The Winter Soldier. That might be the first spoiler podcast of the new year. In the meantime, thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Very well. And I think Jimmy Nesbitt is here. Jimmy Nesbitt's outside. You should go and talk to him. Hold up. 